3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the films and TV shows you loved years ago that are hard to watch now. The availability of nostalgia viewing options on streaming services these days has prompted some rude awakenings about content we once thought we loved. In this hour, we reflect on how our awareness as viewers has shifted And we want to hear from you. What old TV show or film lost its charm for you when you watched it again? Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
4: Lo and behold, you're someone's wife, and you belong to him.
3: I loved the sound of music as a little kid, the songs, the story. But when I was playing it for my daughters recently, the gender dynamics and this line from a song being sung to 16-year-old liesel that marriage will mean she belongs to a man, was one of many things that got to me. I know the movie was made a long time ago, but it made me wonder has this happened to you? You rewatched a movie you once loved, even from just a few years ago, and there were moments that made you cringe. We're reflecting this hour on films and TV shows that don't quite stack up to today's social norms. So tell us what's lost its charm for you? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or tell us on email at forum at kqed.org. And let me tell you who is joining us. Constance Grady is a culture writer at Vox. Constance Grady, thanks so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me. Also, Dave Schilling is with us, co-host of Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. Dave Schilling, thanks for joining us as well.
5: Always a pleasure, and thank you for laughing about the uh, <laughs> the, the title of the show or the tagline. It is very silly. So, I mean,
3: thanks. you could almost describe uh, public radio that way.
5: Too. <laughs> yeah, I think you can describe a lot of stuff that way, but our our show is special.
3: Yeah, I'm sure. So. Well, let me start with you, Dave Schilling. Like, what film or show has not held up for you?
5: Well, this is going to be going pretty far back, and something that I'm sure no one is watching right now, and you shouldn't, (laughs) is a Police Academy franchise. Uh, Uh, There are seven Police Academy movies. Four of them star Steve Guttenberg, who you might remember from Three Men and a Baby. One of the biggest stars of the 80s, Steve Guttenberg, and kind of not around anymore. But those movies were just enchanting to me as a child i loved them i thought they were so madcap and silly uh but watching them today i watched them with my girlfriend i would say probably two or three months into the pandemic last year and she said i can't watch this this is so offensive it's so homophobic it's so racially insensitive it's so xenophobic Mm. and 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 silly uh and offensive the, the we never finished even the first one i had this grand play i had to make her watch all seven and she said no you know what i'm good thank you so much
3: <laughs> what about for you constance grady what has not held up for you
6: well My pick has sort of held up and not held up in very weird ways. Um, My pick is the TV show Misfits, which I think was never a huge hit in the U.S., but it was in the U.K. in the early late aughts, early tens. It started in, I think, 2009. Um, It was this very irreverent show about a bunch of juvenile delinquents who get struck by lightning while they're doing their court ordered community service and end up with really terrible superpowers. Um, and I wanted to rewatch it during quarantine because I felt like watching people act very blase and casual about big apocalyptic things would just be really comforting for me under those circumstances. Right. Uh, but what I had forgotten was this was a show that was really into that like late-aughts ironic homophobia thing where, you know, you say an offensive gay joke and ostensibly the joke is like, oh, this character is not enlightened. But, you know, really the joke is they're getting to say this kind of offensive stuff. And it was just so jarring to me to realize how much that had flown by and hadn't really bothered me the first time I watched it, which was really not that long ago, right? This was just like 10, 11 years ago. Um, And yet somehow that humor had aged so badly. And because it's so central to the core of this show that thinks of itself as being really irreverent and that's like the charm of it, it sort of put a little bit of a sour cast on the whole thing for me, even though there's a lot about the show that I still enjoy.
3: Yeah. And both you and Dave Schilling have have highlighted homophobia as one of the common issues that we're seeing in programs not holding up. And uh, Dave Schilling, you were also just talking about the racial insensitivity of it. What are some other common issues that you find in shows that just really make them sour, as they did for Constance Grady?
5: I think that one of the most common problems with entertainment from (laughs) the last 50 years, I guess, is the gender dynamic. Um, The way in which women are treated as possessions or prizes. Um, I mean that's the, I went to film school actually at San Francisco State University uh, and I was always told like there has to be some sort of prize for the character in screenwriting classes like you have to be getting the girl. And that's always implying that the male character is the engine of the storytelling that the male character is the one that you are identifying with and that the the female lead, really just there to be one at the end. And I think that's true of a lot of um, entertainment from the 80s that I grew up with or the 90s as well. Um, Revenge of the Nerds is a great example of a film that seemed pretty quaint and charming and cute and an underdog story that makes everybody feel wonderful. But there is that infamous scene where um, the lead character, uh, Robert Carradine's character, Um, dupes the female lead into having sex with him Uh, she thinks he is her boyfriend and that is not the case he is pretending and then he takes his helmet off he's like oh guess what it's not your boyfriend it's me that is a violation of someone's consent Um, we all thought that was so cute and like oh good for him he got uh, to achieve something Uh, That he otherwise wouldn't have. We're looking at the world through his perspective, not through hers. How does it feel to be duped like that? It wouldn't actually feel good, but the movie makes it seem like this was a, a fairy tale opportunity for her when it would not be in in real life
3: and we have actually quite a few listeners who've commented on assault the way that it was treated so casually claire writes greece's summer love and song did she put up a fight uh misogyny and, and yeah just sexism and gender this listener writes Maybe it's too obvious, but Manhattan. I used to love early Woody Allen films. In high school, it was kind of a badge of intelligence if you knew the films. I remember loving Muriel Hemingway in Manhattan, weirdly, and this is embarrassing to admit, wishing I could be like her in what seemed to me then a sophisticated New York City milieu, getting the attention of someone like Woody Allen. It is painful to watch now. Well, let me go to call her Roxanne and Hollister. Hi, Roxanne. What, what is something that you Hi. found really cringeworthy these days?
4: Um, so I remember the Dean Martin Roast shows. So I remember watching those, um, like with family, and we just thought they were so funny. We would just, we would just be in tears laughing. And my husband, my husband now, he also remembers that. And we, it just kind of was a fun time. And so we had an opportunity to order some old, like, CDs on them, and we, and we watched them, and we only could get through like half of one. Because it was so bad, and I think that the point that uh, somebody made earlier about um, the way that women are talked about—that was the biggest thing. That was so cringeworthy. And then the other thing was a lot of jokes about alcoholism, a lot of smoking, uh, disability. I mean, just it was—it was just really bad, and I just couldn't get through it.
3: Roxanne, thanks. I mean, Constance Grady, you have written quite a bit, actually, about our realizations now, just how misogynistic a lot of stuff was from
6: the 80s and 90s and even the early aughts. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because these things are so recent. I think we're kind of used culturally to being like, oh, well, the 50s was bad, but after that we kind of got better. And it's been a little jarring for a lot of people, I think, to start to look back most recently with things like the Framing Britney Spears documentary that had a lot of people rethinking the way we talked about famous women during the aughts and just realizing we kind of thought, I think, a lot of people that you know, we'd fixed everything that the bigotry and the racism and the sexism and the homophobia was all gone. And in fact, it really was not. Um, And I think it's kind of important to keep having those conversations and recognizing that it was not gone when we thought it was before. So maybe that's our cue that it's also not gone now and is something that we still need to keep pushing back against.
3: Well, Rita writes, I loved the movie My Fair Lady as a child, so when it popped up as an offering recently, I watched it. I was a bit shocked at the male-dominated message that it sends and Eliza's happiness with the outcome. Ouch! And Andrea tweets, romancing the stone. It's still a fun rom-com with great scenery, but now the racism, mostly from Danny DeVito's character, is just too hard to take. Dave Schilling, have you thought about what has made these issues, the ones that make these so hard to hold up, consistent? Like, what was happening in the industry? (laughs)
5: I think it was, it was just a lack of empathy across the board. I think empathy from the people behind the camera is what's going to make the, the films and television shows more palatable for a modern audience. And empathy wasn't there because the creators were, by and large, white males. And white males are responsible for a lot of wonderful art. I am not going to pretend like I don't very much enjoy watching star Wars. um, But that's just a fact. It's just a fact of the industry that if you look at the demographics um, of who is making movies, if it's directors, if it's editors, if it's screenwriters, if it's producers, it's, it's significantly more male than um, it is today. It's still not even close to where it should be. Here's an example. So, the um, movie that we're talking about this week on my podcast, Galaxy Brains, is Cruella. It seems on the surface to be this very um, female-oriented, female-gay story about uh, empowerment and growing up and all of that stuff. Directed by a man, a white man, Craig Gillespie. Nothing wrong with the fact that he directed it. But you're not going to get the cultural sensitivities you might otherwise get um, if you ha- if you don't have someone who's a part of that world to say, mm, this is what it's really like. This is what it's really like to be um, a black person in America. This is what it's really like to be a- an Asian person in America. This is what it's really like to be queer in America. If you don't have that, you're not going to have the natural empathy required to make something that has um, respect and emotional resonance and reality. You're just going to end up with caricatures, which is what we had in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s with movies mm. like soul man where <laughs> c thomas howell paints his face uh, to pretend to be black to get into harvard oh, or you're going to get indiana jones in the temple of doom where indiana jones is fighting south uh, asian people indian people and just the caricature of that is just really really terrible
3: we're talking with Dave Schilling and Constance Grady about our favorite movies and TV shows that just haven't aged well. And We want to hear yours at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim.
2: Donald Trump, I'd like you to meet... Oh, what am I talking about? All you handsome zillionaires know each other.
3: That was former President Donald Trump with his cameo on a 1996 episode of The Nanny. We're talking about some of our favorite movies and TV shows that for some of us, haven't really aged so well or make us cringe right now. We're talking with Constance Grady, culture writer for Vox and Dave Schilling, co-host of Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV and overthinking collide. And you, our listeners are with us, telling us if there's an old TV show or film that lost its charm for you upon rewatching, that has jokes or scenes that you find cringeworthy today And didn't remember being so bad. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And Stephanie writes, Love Actually. Years ago, I considered it a favorite movie. On rewatch with my 21-year-old son, it was chaotic, disjointed, and just plain terrible. Uh, let me go next to caller Simon in Sacramento. Hi, Simon. Join us.
0: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, yeah, I recently w- rewatched um, uh, There's Something About Mary, which is a, uh, you know, a kind of edgy comedy from the late 90s. Um, and definitely something that uh, millennials sort of grew up, maybe not grew up watching, but saw in high school and, um Boy, my friend and I, we started watching it and didn't make it very far through after the um, the jokes, which are highly charged with uh, misogyny. And the thing that really uh, just struck us as very uncomfortable was the jokes at the expense of people with disabilities. Um, and I I also wanted to uh, just agree with, I, I think it was Constance who said um, how we kind of look back at films from the 50s and... and sort of way back and, uh, think of those as, as things that are, uh, you know, that, that bygone time. Um, but wow, some of the films from the nineties and as she said, um, even the early two thousands are very much, uh, if not, if not worse than some of the uh, tropes that we see in, uh, films from the fifties. So, um, it's an interesting topic. Thanks for bringing it up. And, um, I'll take my. Uh, I'll take comments off the air.
3: Yeah, Simon, you you have some support here. Grace writes, "There's something about Mary is something awful. The Chris Elliott character stalks Mary, played by Cameron Diaz, to the point where she has to shield her identity. All that is played off as hilarious hijinks, but doesn't erase the fact." This was essentially a film about a woman who needed to get a restraining order. I mean, Constance Grady, there's a few things that, um, Simon, this comment bring up and what we were talking about just before the break. One is, as you say, very recent things. And and the other thing that came up is the fact that I, I'm hearing people say, well, I, I watched this old movie when I saw it come up, you know, for example, the woman who watched My Fair Lady. And I was thinking about how streaming services I think really have made this even more pronounced because it gives us access to shows that we probably you know wouldn't turn to without this sort of
6: option before us. Yeah, absolutely. I think The Nanny is a great example there. That's a show that, kind of languished for a while until um, it suddenly showed up on streaming a few months ago and there was this big resurgence of of people watching The Nanny and loving it. A lot of TV critics that I follow were suddenly just tweeting about The Nanny nonstop. Uh, But as they were sort of rediscovering their love for this show, they also had to deal with the fact that it is very much a product of its time and some of the ways we talk about things have really changed and they found themselves really struggling with some of the jokes and the humor and having to just reconcile that with their, con- their you know, still existing admiration for and affection for this show. It's something that's so tricky to reconcile, I think, especially with a sitcom, right, which is a form of art that's supposed to be about comfort and stability and getting you into this nice, cozy place where you're just sitting on your couch in your sweatpants laughing um, and then to suddenly just come across this reminder of some of the really terrible things in the world can be so jarring.
3: What do you think about the speed with which it feels like this shift in social norms has happened that's making us reevaluate things, Dave Schilling, from you know just the early 2000s?
5: Well, I, so, certainly social media has done more than its fair share to, to, to bring that about. Mm. When you are able to uh, commiserate with like-minded individuals and amplify your voice to such a degree... Uh, It's inevitable that things are going to start to move faster, that people are going to start to see things differently, that pressure is going to be brought to bear on companies and um, broadcasters quicker. Um, I think, you know, we're not quite understanding just how intense that process has become. And I think that contributes to a lot of people's anxiety and stress about the world is we as a society can't keep up with the pace of change. Um, which is why I give a lot of um, leeway to some of these things that I watch now that I loved as a kid. It's like, okay, (laughs) you know, they didn't expect things to change. When you're in the moment, you don't expect mores and and cultural um, ideas to change. You just think this is how it's going to be forever. And we are now grappling as a collective with the idea that things are never going to stay the same. And they're constantly going to be in a period of evolution. And how do we grapple with that? How do we accept our history while embracing the very present, very near future?
3: Yeah. Let me go to Emily in San Francisco. Hi, Emily. Thanks for
7: calling. Hi. uh, Thanks for discussing this. Um, What came to mind was actually TBS does this thing every year where they run 24 hours of a Christmas story, which I had seen growing up as a kid and my husband had never seen. So we watched it just this past December and had totally, I had totally forgotten about a scene at the very end where the family goes out for Chinese food after the neighbor's dogs eat the Christmas turkey. And it's just a very blatantly racist scene uh, sort of making fun of language difficulties of certain Asian American English speakers and and sort of ironically that they, they pick on these particular Asian characters for not being able to pronounce L's when it's a Chinese restaurant and Chinese people have the phoneme L. It's the Japanese language that doesn't use the phoneme L. So it was a very flattening, uh, sort of blatant uh, sort of universalizing and othering of, of Asian people in that film. That's widely regarded as a Christmas classic.
3: Yeah. And you say you used to watch this a lot. <laughs> before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I I think that's the thing, right? Like things we used to watch so frequently that suddenly just are jarring in this way. Jane writes Soul Man the entire movie. Dave Schilling, you were talking about Soul Man earlier. And then there are also quite a few people who wrote about just really anti-Asian depictions. Claire writes 16 Candles, Long Duck Dong and the Gong Sound playing every time. The character is referenced. Uh, and Joshua writes, every cool indie movie I stand as a 14-year-old on Tumblr aged badly. Lost in translations, racism is disgusting. I rewatched before a trip to Japan in 2017 and it is horrible. It was Sophia Coppola who was all acclaimed in the early 2000s. Bill, this is a brilliant work of art and it is Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray sitting in a luxury hotel in Tokyo saying racist othering things all day long. <laughs> so that... Uh, that gives you a sense of, of where people are at and what they're reacting to as well. And uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Dave, because you were just getting to this just before I had Emily come on with her comment, was just, what do we do with this kind of content? You were talking about grappling with it, how we wrestle with it, how you watch things and, and try to think about the kinds of issues that they have, but but are also reluctant to completely let them go.
5: Yeah, do I, don't do? th- I, I don't think that we want to take these things off of the streaming universe. I don't think we need to be pulling things down or censoring things. Um, I think we need to be talking about this stuff. I think we need to be saying, this happened. The minute we start um, changing our history is the minute we stop being able to avoid those mistakes again to assume that the world's always been perfect by editing things down, changing things. Um, We are giving way too much credit to the past. We are letting these people off the hook. Every single person who made a movie or TV show that has something offensive in it should answer for that. They should accept it and apologize for it. Um, I saw someone on Twitter talking about how Fisher Stevens apologized for Brown face in the short circuit movies versus C. Thomas Howell not apologizing for Soul Man. Be on record. Talk about it. Accept that you did it. This is our history. This is our cultural history. And when I think about how I was taught history in school, it was always sanitized. It was always um, written in order to make the United States uh, and Western Europe seem uh, benevolent and good and that these systems that are in place are acceptable. The way that things are is acceptable. And by sanitizing our history in that deg- to that degree I- I- in school, we've ended up repeating a lot of the mistakes <laughs> that we could have avoided if we had been more realistic and more honest about our history. And I hope that we start putting um, disclaimers on things and saying this is a depiction of, of <laughs> society that we're, we're not comfortable with anymore but we're going to show it to you. We're going to show it to you unvarnished and the way that it was at the time so that you can accept that this is how things used to be.
3: Well, this listener writes, no, they rarely make me cringe. There are exceptions. I'm intelligent and aware enough to accept the context, time, and culture the media was created in. I also find it encouraging to see the progress we've made as a society, as well as being very conscious of how much more work there is to be done. Constance Grady, how do you think about what to do with this kind of content and in terms of consumption and, and our ability to, to sort of grapple with the things that are are offensive about it at times.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that listener's approach is a really great way If it if it works for you. I think the worst thing we can do with this content is to ignore it or pretend that it's just okay. I think it's fine to still love the things you love. You can't change your emotional reaction to a work of art. But at the same time, it is good to notice the ideas embedded in it and be critical of those ideas and not just unthinkingly accept them and let them worm their way into your mind and influence the way you think in the way that you might have when that piece of art first came out. Um, I think it's very reasonable to say, okay, I love this thing. It does a certain joke or character very badly, but I'm going to embrace it despite these flaws, I think it's also very reasonable to say, no, this joke bothers me too much. I don't want to engage with it. I don't want to do that to myself every time I go to this piece of art that's supposed to bring me pleasure. For me, the dividing line is often how central the joke is to or the offensive moment is to the whole ethos of the work of art. So I mentioned that earlier that misfits really bothered me because the ironic homophobia is so central to the show's sense of irreverence and what it thinks it is doing well. Um, Comparatively, something like Gilmore Girls, which has a lot of homophobia and fat phobia and just general badness of the early aughts, that is much easier for me to take because that is not the thing that the show is about or what it thinks of itself as being about. That's my personal line. It's not going to work for everyone. I think these are such personal These are such personal issues and Mm -hmm. you really can't control your emotional reaction to a work of art, nor should you necessarily try to.
3: What about the fact that when we do go back to critique something that it's often perceived, especially by people who love something as like this sort of smug back padding, you know, that we're, we're so great. We're so aware. We're so ahead of it all. Can we critique something without it? sounding like that? And what are some ways for us to keep that in mind? Constance Grady.
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing I always remember as a critic is that critiquing something can be an act of love. You can say, I love this thing. It could have been better. And because I love it, I see it clearly and I can see some of the flaws in it. And I think we should also always remember, of course, that we are embedded in our own times and there are going to be things we think now and treat as commonplace now that are going to just age terribly in 10 years. And we'll look back and say, what are we thinking? And that's something that we always have to make our peace with, right? Yeah. I was speaking um, a while back to Sarah Marshall, who is the co-host of You're Wrong About, which is a podcast that does a lot of this kind of re-examination work. And she said that... You know we if we start to be afraid of getting cancelled in ten years because of of ideas we have now that we may not necessarily recognize to be wrong and will then that's just us being afraid of society progressing
3: uh well dave there's this comment from Susie who writes, this topic speaks to me so much It's like discovering a friend you thought you knew that you grew up with is actually a bad person, and why is it that you didn't notice then? What I like about this comment is it it does a lot. It's an homage to film and TV and it's power, right? Like an old friend, but at the same time, expressing this feeling bad about not noticing how bad it was. And I do feel like this sense of feeling shame for liking it is what can make people defensive. (laughs) What do
5: you think? Uh, I I mean, I, I definitely agree with Constance that this is not a situation where we can always know ahead of time that something is going to be bad. And we ha- we can't um, create a world where we're trying to uh, self-censor ourselves too terribly much because w- society is going to evolve. It's going to continue to evolve. And so feeling bad about liking something in 1997 that you wouldn't like today is ignoring the fact that you as a human being specifically, individually, have changed. Not just the world, but you as a person have changed. I am not the same person I was when I was 16. If I was, boy, I would be an annoying person and nobody would want to hang out with me. Uh, I was not uh, the most intelligent, uh, most sensitive person at the time because I was 16. So so if you think of society as like a big kid and we're all kind of growing slowly, um, and I would, I would say we're, we're in our twenties now and we're kind of like <laughs> going to college for the first time, uh, and like, oh, wow, this is, this is different. Oh, people, uh, of all different kinds of, of, of races and ethnicities and backgrounds are here. And what am I going to do with all this information? Like we're, <laughs> the internet has, has, has forced us to mature as a society far faster than we were ready. Um, and so don't feel bad that you've evolved as a person don't feel bad that society has evolved we're always going to be making mistakes and if you start your uh cultural uh experience with the idea that you are going to fail that you are going to get it wrong you're going to be a happier better person because you're going to be willing to change you're going to be willing to get better you're going to be willing to make the the moves that are required for you to be the best person you can be
3: Dave Schilling is co-host of Galaxy Brains. Constance Grady is culture writer for Vox. We're talking about old TV shows or films that have lost their charm. What are they for you? What movie from your childhood or teen years were you excited to show your kids that you had to turn off. 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Matthew writes, all of John Hughes' films are now cringy. Yuck. Kristen writes, a few months ago, I watched Pretty in Pink with my 13-year-old daughter. I told her how much I loved the movie. Halfway through the movie, she looked at me like she'd never seen me before. This is so sexist and racist, Mom, and I completely agreed. I threw out plans to watch any of my other favorite teen movies. Charles writes, Sleeping Beauty, Kissing a Sleeping Woman, fairy tale? Scott writes, I think a classic example of what you're talking about is Animal House. When we moved across country to Martinez, my parents tried to cheer me up by taking me to Animal House. And of course, my 14-year-old hormone crazy self loved it. Also, it was this little underdog film that made it big. Wow. Wow. Now, however, it's essentially unwatchable. Racism, sexism, and rampant misogyny, still a few funny gags, but overall socially unacceptable. We'll talk about those shows that are making us cringe after the break. And we'll also talk about shows that you think are holding up and why. So stay with us for that. We'll have more of Forum after the break.
2: So no one told you life was gonna be this way Your job's a joke you broke
3: We're talking about some of your favorite movies and TV shows that have not aged so well and might make us cringe now. We're joined by Constance Grady, a culture writer at Vox. Dave Schilling, co-host of Galaxy Brains, where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. It's a podcast. We're asking you, our listeners, to tell us if there is an old TV show or film that's lost its charm for you, that you loved as a kid and just cannot watch today. Also, what movie or series has stood the test of time? You can tell us that, too, at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqbd.org or post them on Twitter or Facebook. Barbara in San Francisco, join us.
4: Uh, hello. My first one, of course, is Gone with the Wind, which was released in 1939. It's totally cringeworthy nowadays. There's another thing that was another medium. Uh, radio. The Lone Ranger, his, his sidekick was named Tonto, mm. Native American. Tonto means stupid in Spanish. So that was a down putting down of the Native Americans. The third Oh, the most cringeworthy. I have a VCR of Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles. The maltreatment of black people in that is so bad. If I had the player to play it any longer, I wouldn't watch it at all.
3: Mm. Well, Barbara.
4: Three examples of cringeworthy productions.
3: Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing those. And uh, you know, actually, I have another caller. It looks like on the line who who might who might want to push back a little on your Blazing Saddles uh, assessment. <laughs> Let's go to Andrew in Berkeley. Hi, Andrew.
9: Oh goodness. Yes, uh, I'd like to make a pitch for Blazing Saddles for holding up well after fifty years almost. It's if you look, it's one stereotype after another. But you need to look at why the film is playing with these stereotypes the The ridicule is really directed at the bigots in the film and bigotry that the joke is on them that's these stereotypes are not presented to be true representation of anybody or any group. The idea is the problems that are created in the in the film are because of the bigotry and If you actually follow the themes throughout the film it's it's when people start getting along across these these gaps where there's there's happiness and friendships and stuff. So, I think you're not really seeing the big picture if you don't uh, look at what the theme of the film is. So, I think it's, it's almost 50 years now. And I, I know they got to bleep out a lot of stuff if they broadcast it today. But I think Blazing Saddles holds up really well.
3: Well, thanks, Andrew. To Constance Grady, your point uh, that this is very personal for people and they have to draw their personal lines around this.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are so many movies where someone could be like, this is absolutely not something that I want to inflict on myself anymore. Um, And other ones where someone might be like, or, you know, someone else with the same movie might say, you know what, I think this works really well. Um, Something I think about a lot is, you know, the author is dead. The person who is perceiving the work of art is the one who creates it every time they experience it. So... (sighs) every reading of it becomes valid we're all making it over every each and every time
3: well mike writes would appreciate your guest thoughts about one of my favorite shows as a kid the courtship of eddie's father though i haven't revisited it yet revisited it i seem to recall it being a bit ahead of its time regarding women's roles and maybe lacking racially ignorant cringe attacks i'm not familiar with this are either of you familiar dave schilling or constance grady
5: Oh, I, I, I watched The Courtship of Eddie's Father. I watched uh, all kinds of Nick at Night, like older television shows, uh, before I was able to grapple with any of the uh, the stuff that's in there. Courtship of Eddie's Father is, is interesting because it's about a single dad. Um, so there is kind of a, a more um, modern gender politics there because it's not about the nuclear family that existed in so many uh, mid-century sitcoms, especially the black and white ones. But I mean, I mean, I think it's hard to to really give it any credit for doing anything about race because you, you did simply didn't see people of color on television very often. Uh, it was not an issue. It was not important to those television shows. They existed outside of race because they wanted to pretend as though people of color did not exist. Essentially, mm. um, obviously, there is a, there are uh, exceptions to that rule, like I Love Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. Um, or uh, you know Desi Arnaz, uh, but that at the same time they didn't talk about him being Cuban. you know they didn't talk about him being a Latino man in America. It was just he had this kooky wife, and she's always doing silly things. So, yeah, there, there certainly isn't the racial stuff that you, you feel bad about because it just they were invisible at that time.
3: Well, Caroline writes about a way uh, that she's found to enjoy old shows and films. Caroline writes, my friends and I compile a list of skip episodes for series like The Nanny and (laughs) Frasier. Let me go to Terry in Larkspur. Hi, Terry.
2: Hi. The Queen Jersey show for me was Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn, because now she would just seem like a really weird, pathetic stalker, and you just kind of wanted her to get a backbone, and then they were kind of passing her around. But also, I think what held up really well was War of the Roses, because it's kind of like, you know, it starts off with him being kind of a jerk, and she's the woman that kind of figures, I just can't take this jerk anymore. And you're rooting for her back when it first came out, and you're still rooting for her. And I think that's because he was such a clear jerk, and she is the woman that kind of is the hero in the movie, despite all what they did to each other. And 16 Candles is a mess because he hands his drunk girlfriend over to a guy and says, here, do what you want with her, and the oh guy God, takes I pictures know. of her. So, yeah, it, those were cringeworthy then. He, really, for me, I remember watching that and feeling really, that's not cool at all, and that's hideous, and it still is. But I think that Audrey Hepburn movies are really hard to watch because we love her so much, but in a lot of them, she's just not very strong like she's just really like you know uh, she in that sabrina she was weird actually (laughs) well thanks
3: thanks for for sharing your assessments there let me go to richard in daily city next hi richard
9: hey how's it going thanks for taking my call you know, what gets me is the way that Kirstie Alley and Diane Chambers were treated and took it in tears. Cheers. It's like uh, it's like there was a corporate climbing mentality that Kirstie Alley comes across as, and she's willing to do anything for her bosses. Uh, Ted Danson was hitting on both, and that was totally acceptable. The thing that's so cringeworthy or appalling about it was... What kind of an example it sets for those of us who, you know, were of age at that time, or coming into age at that time, mm. back in the eighties or eighties and nineties
3: going on. And well, now, yeah, Richard, your your connection's just a little hard. I think probably because you're driving. But but thanks for sharing your comment. Cheers does come up a lot for as as being jarring for people on rewatch. Victor writes, what about Beverly Hills Ninja, the way they had Chris Rock's character running around after a chicken and how Farley's character refers to him as boy? And David writes, Dukes of hazard it's so racist now. When I was a kid, I thought nothing of it. And Carrie writes, obviously, all in the family made my jaw drop when I saw an episode recently. Even the theme song I used to love made me cringe. Many Looney Tunes are racist and sexist. I finally got my 11-year-old son to watch My Fair Lady and the ending has horrible messages about women's roles. But I do try to use these as opportunities to talk to him about these situations, give them some context, discuss how it would make him feel, how he would react if he thinks parts of the story are good or bad, what characters could do differently or better. Okay, so what I want to know right now, Dave Schilling, is what holds up for you? What's a show or a movie that holds up for you in a surprising way?
5: This is a wonderful question because we could talk about things that are good and positive. It's great. <laughs> um, I really love the show News Radio. It was on NBC. It got bounced around the schedule quite a bit, but I always thought it was a better written, better acted show than Seinfeld, which was the big hit of that era. Um, it's a multi uh, ethnic cast. Um, it's a show that, even though there is an office romance, it is kind of dealt with in a very mature way. Um, the women are not seen as prizes there's their, their own characters. Um, it's, it's got Joe Rogan. So there's that. <laughs> if you're a Joe Rogan fan, uh, you'll be excited by that. If you're not, maybe that's the part that makes you cringe. But I always felt like that was the platonic ideal of a workplace sitcom. Is it the gender roles felt um, considered and smart? Uh, another thing that I think holds up really well is, is all of the works of Albert Brooks. Um, we talked about Woody Allen earlier on the show and how his movies are so clearly expressions of his pathologies and his, uh, the behavior that we now see as inappropriate is projected in these in these movies. The wonderful thing about Albert Brooks is that he was playing with a lot of the same kind of stereotypes of the neurotic yuppie Uh, but he did it in such a way that it was satirical, that he was the villain of most of his films. If it's um, Lost in America or Real Life uh, or Modern Romance uh, or The Muse, uh, all of these movies, Defending Your Life, probably the least satirical one, but the one everybody loves the most. Uh, He is this character in these movies that you kind of don't like, because he personifies a lot of the worst traits of that part of history. And I think when you can find material, especially comedy that is reflecting upon itself or upon the the, the world that it lived in, you're going to get things that are going to hold up better than something mm. like there's something about Mary, which has no concepts of itself, doesn't understand its role in society and isn't really lampooning anything other than, people of different races or women or uh, people with different abilities. Like that is what I look for now in things that hold up is a a sense of satire or a sense of, um, you know, self-reflection. Blazing Saddles to me is a perfect film as a black person in America. I think it's one of the, the greatest pieces of art about racism ever made. Uh, and Richard Pryor, uh, if you don't know Richard Pryor, did quite a bit of work on that screenplay. And uh, like, I just think it's, it's a perfect piece of filmmaking. And I will always go back to that, because it, it was addressing race in the right way at that time.
3: And again, Dave Schilling is co-host of Galaxy Brains, and Constance Grady is a culture writer at Vox. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So Constance Grady, what has held up for you?
6: I think one of the things that's been really exciting for me about this period where we are having all these conversations, reevaluating uh, the very recent past, has been getting to rediscover pieces of pop culture that kind of got ignored in their time. So my pick is Jennifer's Body from 2009, uh, which was kind of a flop when it first came out and kind of considered a bomb. Um it was The screenplay was by Diablo Cody. It was her first film after Juno won the Oscar. And there was like a big backlash against her at the time as being a sort of a, a tritard hipster person. Um, and it stars Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. There was also a huge backlash against Megan Fox at the time, which I think looking back, we can sort of see as being part of that particular style of early aughts misogyny, where every woman who was perhaps sexualized in some way, was found to be doing it wrong and was somehow failing feminism personally. Um, but Jennifer's body actually really, really holds up. There was this whole trend of re-examining it um, around its 10-year anniversary a couple years ago. And one of the things that people have pointed out about it is viewers at the time were reading it as, or were viewing the film as though the expected audience was a straight guy. They were saying, okay, this is a sex horror film. It's about Megan Fox being sexy and she's going to kiss Amanda Seyfried. And on that level, it kind of fails as a movie, right? It's not very sexy. Um, also not very scary. But once you take the default viewer as a woman or a girl... You can read it as a rape-revenge thriller, and on that level, it's fantastic. (laughs) So the premise is that uh, Megan Fox's character Jennifer gets abducted, basically, by the members of this indie band. One of them is played by Adam Brody, who, of course, was Seth Cohen on The O.C., so one of the beloved nice guys of pop culture. Um, And they take her off into the woods and something mysterious happens, which you don't find out for most of the movie. And then when she comes back, she's a monster who takes boys out aside and kills them. And it sort of becomes this whole metaphor for the problem of men sacrificing women's bodies on the altar of their own professional ambition and how women have to navigate this toxic atmosphere that has been created. And really the central relationship in it is between Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. The guys are kind of disposable. So it becomes about their sort of fraught friendship and the ways they resent each other and the ways they love each other it's a very good film about being a teenage girl. But because in 2009, we didn't think about teenage girls' points of view when we evaluated films, that kind of got ignored for a long time. It's yeah. been really cool to see that shift happening.
3: Well, this is writes, a show that holds up, Living Single, the hilarious 90s sitcom with an all-Black cast that actually inspired Friends, which hasn't held up so well in many ways. And then this listener writes, I think it's a big problem with the American psyche in general that wrong things aren't wrong until all your family, friends, and neighbors, and society at large agree they're wrong. I love King of the Hill, but as a Black woman, I know that Hank and Dale and that whole crew would have been leading the charge at the Capitol on January 6th. Still, they make me laugh. I watched an old episode of Seinfeld where Elaine complained to a white police officer that a black shop owner was wasting water by hosing down the ground in front of his shop. That makes her a Karen in my eyes, but the show is still hilarious. It's art, and it's supposed to push the limits. Dajanly, one of the things I like about this listener's comment is that I do find that I can love a show again or even more If I've gone through the process of grappling with its flaws, does that happen for you?
5: Yeah. If you actually engage intellectually with the things that you're watching, it's a better experience. I think that's true of anything. Like if you take a critical eye to the things that you watch, if it's contemporary or it's things from the past, you're going to get something out of it. Even if it's, oh, this is not good. And I think this is repulsive. Um, Always like be a critical thinker when you're engaging with art, if it's books or if it's movies or if it's television shows music, whatever it is, um, that is going to enrich the experience. Uh, And before I I move on, I just want to say one other movie that I really think holds up that is worth your intellectual time is Josie and the Pussycats, uh, which is it sounds silly similar to Jennifer's Body, seemed like it was you know, just kind of a genre trifle. But this is a movie about capitalism and about um, the ways in which um, the music industry or the entertainment industry takes advantage of young women. It's a, it's a hilarious movie, but it's also one of the best satires, I think, of that time period, that pop culture moment uh, of those the early 2000s. And uh, we had a chance on Galaxy Brains to talk to the director's of that movie, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfant. And they were like, yeah, we wanted to do this. This was a mistake from a, a commercial standpoint, but from an artistic standpoint, it got us what we needed, which was to make a point.
3: Well, you just got a shout out, the listener writes, Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie of all time. Join the army. The <laughs> army, yes, of
5: course. <laughs> Classic. Well,
3: well, Dave Schilling, I want to thank you so much for coming on today.
5: Thank you for having me.
3: Dave Schilling, co-host of Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. Constance Grady, thanks so much for coming on as well. Thanks so much for having me. Constance Grady, culture writer for Vox. And thanks to our listeners for sharing their cringeworthy shows and movies and also the ones that they think hold up. And also my thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment with an assist from Caroline Smith. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim.